0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. And this week on the podcast and on the panel, we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, I'm Sasha Wolf, And as usual, we have a special guest this week. And that is Simon Zelazny. I hope I did not botch your name. Not at all. How are you do? Great. Okay, then, Simon, why don't you tell our audience why we invited you and why you have interesting things to talk about? And maybe also, like, how you ended up being here and how you ended up working with Elixir and Erlang.
1: Sure thing. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to Once again, that's topendevs.com.
2: So maybe working backwards from how I got here, presumably uh, you or one of your researchers found uh, my most recent blog post on medium.com uh, about preparing uh, the whatnot.com live service for, uh, for very, very big events. So very quickly, Whatnot is a live shopping app that's focused uh, chiefly on collectibles, uh, but not only our are constantly expanding our categories. So there's music, vintage clothing, bags, all kinds of uh, stuff uh, coming onto the platform. But what we were focused on there, so I'm on the uh, the team at Whatnot uh, that focuses on service stability, scaling, reliability, that kind of thing. So it just came out of the blue. One of our, one of our marketing leads said, hey guys, uh, Logan Paul is going to be doing a big event on Whatnot. It's going to be streaming on Whatnot. There's going to be lots of people coming in. Hopefully, and uh, we've never had such an event on our platform. What do we do to uh, make sure that we can handle this type of thing, right? Which is like a qualitatively different thing. And so so that was fun. That's usually usually when that kind of thing comes down, it's a very fun engineering engineering challenge where you have a system and, and there's actually something to prove. It's not like a subjective. Oh, this is nice. Oh, that might be nice, blah, blah. blah. But it's like you either do it, hit, hit the target or not. So, so uh, our team went, got our hands dirty, and and did some work around uh, our elixir service. So, so whatnot runs on two main services, which is a Python REST API for like the the slow data, I call it, right, which is like user profiles, shipping, and that kind of stuff. And then we have uh, elixir for the fast data, which is the bids and the chats and all the stuff that whizzes by your screen. So, wh- why? Right. So, just uh, kind of pulling the thread backwards. So, why Phoenix and why PubSub and and why why was I even there at whatnot at that time? So, so that goes back to my earlier engagements with uh, with Elixir and Erlang. You might've seen the talk from uh, ElixirCon from 20, I believe it was 18 or 17, uh, 17 probably, uh, about uh, scaling uh, Elixir. Phoenix stub also at Grindr, the, the dating app, where we had a, a project uh, around uh, tracking uh, and and displaying user presence uh, in a real-time, as, as close to real-time as possible. So that was my kind of first big project with Elixir over there at Grinder. But previous to that, it was Erlang, Erlang, Erlang for a couple of years. So I was working at Erlang Solutions in Krakow, which was a great experience, just having having a lot of exposure to various systems around the world. It was actually fun because that was the the beginning of the transition to Elixir. So there was, you know, this baseline of Erlang and then a little bit of Elixir here or there, and people getting into it and getting their toes wet Um so that's pretty much, I came uh, to Erlang Solutions by Functional Programming. Quick anecdote was that I was, uh, we run a, a, we used to run a, a B&B in the, in the Polish mountains with my wife and we had a guest and that guest, I was driving her to the train station and she asked me, what do I do? And I said, I do Functional Programming. I was programming Haskell back then. And she's like, oh, what's Functional Programming? I'm like, well, you know, it's like you have an Excel spreadsheet and you put stuff here and then you have formulas there, then roughly... That you're doing functional programming because you're not telling the computer, do this, do this, do that, but you have like a description of the system. And, and so she remembered that. And then she turned out to be a recruiter for like IT. And she remembered that my functional programming talk and called me up and said, Erlang Solutions is looking. For developers uh, so that's how i got into solutions and so that's
0: you, why i'm here so, so you so you got the job because you compared functional programming to an excel
2: <laughs> to excel yes
0: yeah <laughs> I, I think that's the first time i heard that comparison but it, yeah I, I see why why you made it i've never heard
2: i tried before. to come up with we with with something that would you know i was driving and 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 she was a, a person working in a corporate environment so i thought what how good how do i how do I reach her uh, so uh yeah, you know, work? Yeah. Relate
0: to something with which she understands. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. Interesting. Okay. But I mean, it's quite, quite a journey. Also like having worked at Erlang, Erlang Solutions foundations. Sorry. My brain is mushy today. Solutions.
2: Erlang yeah, Solutions. Yeah. Solutions. The best
0: that's, Erlang company. <laughs> that's, 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 that's pretty cool. That's pretty. Okay. Um, but I guess, I mean, from, from 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 your history of working with Erlang, from your history of working with Elixir, you have quite gathered quite a bit of experience and like, Especially scaling and things, right? Uh, I mean, it's, you're talking about like this whole presence thing and grinder. Yeah, I feel like there's a whole talk on ElixirCon in Seattle. You you gave on that. I mean, the kind of the whole scenario at at whatnot with with, with the sales thing. So, is there like I don't know, like if you had to say, okay, we have, like some really big learnings I have, especially maybe compared to other platforms and other languages, because you said like at whatnot you also use Python and some Python still doesn't elixir. So what are some key takeaways? Because we, we don't want to reiterate everything from the talk here, right? But like, what are some key takeaways? They so say, okay, like, this is like, what's important part of my learning uh, learning journey and like something um, interesting and valuable for every Elixir developer out there potentially.
2: Sure. So I think what's interesting is that people or maybe this was before the days of Kubernetes, right? And before the days of, of magically scalable clouds and so forth. So, so there was this golden age, right? Where I, I would say maybe mid 20 teens, where Erlang was like the scalable platform. So when people, you know, were looking for scale, they would either go for like hardcore Java enterprise, big, big, really big installations, or maybe they would hack in C++, the, the really performance conscious and, and, and skilled people. But then, you know, you had like Ruby on Rails and all this really slow, right, slow software, which is by the way, how Elixir came to be, right? Uh, because Ruby was nice, but too slow. Uh, anyway, so 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 it, back in those days, people were like, okay, Right, we need a we need a scalable uh, concurrent system. So we're going to go uh, go to Erlang, and I I definitely think that's true and has held true. And I would definitely pick Elixir nowadays, or maybe even Erlang. But you know, probably Elixir is is much more easier to hire for. So it, it definitely holds today. But I think there are some caveats as to what. We mean by scalability and what kind of scalability is, works nice with nicely with with these systems with these underlying systems or elixir or just beam systems so i think to me one of the one of the key things that really that really kind of i don't know how, how to put this sells beam short is when people say when people uh have, have bought into this you know new style kubernetes let's have a lot of pods let's use the the cheapest uh hardware possible let's let's Let's, some people have really kind of like gotten into the quantity over quality side of things, right? Let's just throw a bunch of stuff. The more numbers, the better, and we can scale that way. Uh, and then what usually happens is you have this, if you imagine a metric like RPS served per CPU, then you end up with systems that aren't doing really well on that metric, right? Because you have very slow CPUs and then there's a lot of routing and all that stuff. So and then if you put elixir on that, it's not gonna it's it's not gonna shine right because the is it's just uh, you're not giving it you're not giving f- giving it enough power. So I think the the primary lesson for me through through my career, uh, and actually if you if you watch presentations from the, the WhatsApp people and, and so forth, is give elixir a big machine and don't worry about it. Right, uh, you. Yes, it's more expensive to get those all those CPUs in one box versus buy a bunch of, you know, spot instances, whatever. But you gain so much more in terms of, A, your app performance, B, operational overhead. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It's very fast. It uses all, of, all the CPUs, right? So it can. Uh, there's no sleeping. There's no waiting. There's none of the stuff that you get in Python, right, where your app is mostly just sleeping or waiting for stuff. And it's... Uh, So so I think uh, lesson one for me is if you can run the app on four big machines versus 16 small machines, then do it on four big machines. Of course, if you're just running a a web front end, then you don't need to have a cluster. And in that case, you can run on, you know, fine tune your your parameters to whatever you need. Uh, So so we're talking about So maybe just for some context, the kinds of systems where I think really Erlang makes sense is if you have a system that needs to be fully connected right? You have stuff, you have like auctions or chats or group chats, what have you that are concurrent, right? And that are should be accessible throughout the cluster. Otherwise, do what you want. Uh, it doesn't really matter all that much, right? But in these cases, uh, I think it does. So that's one thing, the the machine size and trying to reduce the number of nodes actually, right? Which is, again, not super intuitive today, when people say, oh, i want to scale out, and they, you know, brag about how many machines versus how little machines. Anyway, the next thing I think uh, that's important is that performance of these systems is sometimes very unintuitive. And so you should load test your system, figure out. So look, actually forcing yourself to load test the system gives a gives a lot of benefits to, to you, the engineer, and to your engineering team uh, in terms of the expertise you gain uh, and to the system itself, because obviously you're tuning it for performance, uh, or rebuilding it. And then three, For the organization, because in order to load test the system, you have to instrument it, you have to put in place all the kinds of things that you would have in production that you want to have in production, that you probably don't have time to kind of sit down and oh yeah, let's have a you know Jira ticket to add all this stuff. No one's gonna say, Oh yeah, spend a week adding metrics to the system, right? That's not a that's not a viable business aim. Whereas if you're load testing for a particular case, and you want to say, hey, right, uh, our system is capable of doing ABC, then you won't know what ABC is until you put metrics in. So at the end of the process, you come out in a much better state as an engineering organization, because you have stronger engineers, they know what's inside the system, right? You have load testing tools that you can reuse. uh, And then the system is instrumented very well. So those are my two big takeaways for uh, Elixir and Erlang. And I don't know, we can maybe uh get in get in, uh dig into uh, either one of those. Those that'd be yeah, but it's interesting that you say that. I referred
0: especially this part the part about like maybe giving the beam a bigger machine to work with uh, for a few times. Um I know I'm not no not I don't know if I can tell, say the name, so I'm just gonna go uh, indirect here but that's like this, also this German company which also is using Elixir and they basically they offloaded their hosting to like a service provider not like Her- kind of like Heroku but more like okay here the people literally working on like getting this to run, right? Like, okay, they they say, they basically pay them a fix amount and say, you get this thing to run, we give you, like, an artifact, a Docker image, and they, you make it run. And they always, when I, when I talk to them, they told they, they told this story about, okay, they just put it on, like, I don't know, two big boxes, and, like, this thing is chugging along with, like, on a quite considerable load. And this, this hosting shop, they're using, run, also running a lot of other Ruby based applications. And they were always like, Elixir oh, stuff, it runs so nicely, right? <laughs> they like need a lot less machines and not less horsepower at the end of the day because the beam is just very good at using the resources it has available. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's like, it's an interesting thing to see how this age old piece of technology actually Still outperforms some more modern solutions.
2: <laughs> um, right, right, and al- so also that's very interesting because, for example, if you if you look at metrics, if you're one of these, uh, you know, uh, one of one of w- member of this team that's hired to to babysit systems, right, and mm-hmm. then you look at a Ruby system and it's and it's at eighty percent CPU. That's like alarm region, right? That means something something is going really wrong. Whereas if you have a Beam system and it's at eighty percent CPU, sure, that's not probably not the optimal range, but it's not it's you. If it's stable at eighty percent CPU, then that's fine, right? Because you have you have these spin locks. You have the schedulers that sometimes won't right. They won't deschedule. They won't spin down because maybe they're they're waiting for work. Uh, so there's there's a bunch of stuff that's not immediately intuitive, right? To to even DevOps organizations, right? Because if if someone's not familiar with how the beam works internally and how the schedulers divide work, uh, then sometimes these things, uh, yeah, come as
3: yeah. I had that somewhat recently with a client of mine. I had like a, a job where I would pull in like 700 XML files and then parse them and create a bunch of PHP files. And I was getting pings from from my client. And he's like, yeah, the uh, the DevOps team are, are wondering what's going on with the server because it's acting crazy. I'm like, what do you mean it's acting crazy? Well, it's suddenly at like 0% and then all of a sudden it's at like, you know, 800% or whatever it was because I'm using all the cores. And they're like, is there something wrong with your software? I said, no, it's sync time there is anything wrong so they just couldn't understand why you know why it was just one time of the day going nuts and then before super super quiet
2: it's like a superpower right regular i mean not to use it a, a, it's not a disparaging term but regular programmers have to go through a a good amount of effort to say oh let's go from zero to full cpu utilization right it's not it's not obvious how you do this in other languages whereas in On the beam, you just spawn a bunch of processes. And I think this is, uh, Sasha, what you said, right? This is like super ancient technology. But I think the things they aimed to solve back then are still issues in programming, right? Not even in like systems design, but in programming, right? They said, hey, how can we right? How can we actually uh, make things concurrent, not even parallel, but they said concurrent, right? And even if we're running on one CPU. And if you remember, the whole move to Beam SMP was like a big re-engineering effort because it was not uh, it, it, they, they didn't really think of it in the beginning, right? So it wasn't even parallel. But the fact that the problem of concurrency was tackled first gives us all these benefits, right? Which, which just speaks to the, the, the foresight of the original Orlang developer.
0: Yeah, I always tell when I talk to people who are not familiar with the with beam and elixir and Erlang, I always say that like the problems which were solved back then through the conception of Erlang are actually very similar to what we have to solve nowadays in like cloud computing scenarios. So there's like a lot of overlap, maybe coincidental. I don't know, like I'm not a tech historian or something. So it's like I couldn't drop airlines, but I mean, at the end of the day, you you have a whole lot of concurrent connections and you don't want to affect one connection but if you, if the other has an issue, and all of those are like qualities we also now would like to see in our distributed and and cloud-based systems, running, what well, running our apps, running the backends, whatever, like right. I mean that. Classic example, if, if, if one request for one user gets stuck, you don't want to get every request stuck, right? But that's potentially something which can happen. For example, Node.js. Like, if you actually end up doing an infinite loop, yeah, well, good luck, now it's stuck for everybody. And that's just not something which, uh, this is just the thing you uh, basically, on a fundamental level, get for free in the Beam. because. It has been built from the ground up with these qualities in mind.
2: And Not only that, every process is an infinite loop, right? Uh yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So that's the what, what is an error condition in Node.js is actually just the daily bread uh, on the beam. Uh, yeah. but I think regarding what you said about the problems in, in the cloud and so forth, I think this is one of the dangers for, for the beam and for Elixir. because uh, the way I see it is like a fractal, it's a fractal situation, right? You have essentially in, in, in in computing right you have a couple of concerns among which is resource sharing the first one right and then and then concurrency the second one and then whatever comes out of that like persistence blah blah blah, blah. but essentially it's it's how do, how do you share the resource and how do you make sure that things share the resource uh fairly among multiple things to quote right and so that's what an os solves and and if you uh if you read a uh, going to be I'm, I'm going to plug this at the end so maybe i'm not going to go into the but if you if you read joe armstrong's uh, phd thesis and, and and if you talk to the old old time erlangers they understand that the beam is just uh an os so it, it gives you the same facilities as an os does, right you launch a process it's running somewhere you have a handle to it which is a pid it's even called the same way right um and so you have the operating system at this super base level talking with the hardware right that's super low of I don't I don't see that as going away then you have the beam which is like an operating system but at the application level right talking not to the hardware but to the OS and that was super cool that was super cool back when I when I would deploy you know the the grinder chat just got deployed via bash if you read uh, bash and make and if you read uh, the whatsapp presentations, they would deploy their stuff with rsync for a very long time, I'm, I'm repeating old tales here that it's probably different nowadays, but it, but they would run on the same very basic hardware, you ship, uh, you know, ship some uh, ship some beam files, run a make and bash and you're good. And I think so why do I think this is a challenge for Elixir? Because I think that level of abstraction has is being squashed by the level of abstraction of like the super DevOps uh, people which are saying, Hey, Yes, you have the operating system at the, at the hardware level. The Beam is a type of operating system, sure. But how about we make an operating system in the cloud, right? Where, yes, you also have processes, but they can be anywhere. And then, yes, you also have the registry, which is like service discovery, mesh, net, all that stuff, right? And that layer that's coming up, I feel is antagonistic towards Elixir because it does all the, all the things that Elixir does, arguably just as well, but much less efficiently. So unless we get we get super serious about you know energy efficiency and and that kind of thing, which I don't see our industry uh, getting, but uh, but if we do, then then that's a chance for Elixir because we can say, hey, this is you know we can run this stuff at scale uh, at a very low overhead. But otherwise, uh, those the cloud as operating system type of uh, paradigm, I think, is encroaching upon the beam. Sorry to be a downer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not that. <bad. laughs> yeah. I've I've never thought
0: about it that way, to be honest. But I I, I see the parallels you're drawing. I mean, at the end of the day, at least interested to see where, where where the journey might be going there. Because right now, yeah, I I see some of the parallels, and I mean, I've seen also people, for example, call Kubernetes like the operating system of a cloud, right? But it's a very leaky abstraction at the moment, <laughs> like a very leaky abstraction. as <laughs> you hungry too? Yeah, and I mean. Something I see a lot in the elixir community at least from from where i'm standing is like this this vying and this pushing for simplicity, and that is like to be honest like the exact opposite of what I see happening in the cloud if i mean the the cloud is many things but it's not simple, <laughs> and I think that might i hope that this is like a unique selling point which 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 also the beam can then like, i can the all languages of the beam can maybe use more to, to stay relevant maybe in a time where a lot of similar problems are being solved by through different means. But still, I mean, like just just think about how many services there are on AWS and like, how many different services there are there on AWS, which arguably solve very similar needs. And I mean, you literally can hire people to just figure out how to do the things you want to do on AWS, right? Like there's sort of uh, AWS experts for hire out there. And I mean, of course, there are probably also Beam experts out there for hire, but I still feel that as like an average Joe developer, my chances of getting something done on the Beam without having maybe some previous knowledge compared to getting something done on AWS, I I take my bets with a Beam, (laughs) all things being equal.
2: Solving the problem at the lowest layer possible uh, and not not the highest, right? And not the highest level uh, where I think it's not about possibility, but profitability. But also, see, it's interesting because I, I too, uh, I too feel that. Well, not to shortchange uh, other programming communities, because I think the 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 drive to simplicity is very common. At you know, some higher level or longer experience with programming, you 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 come to realize that stuff that even that you've written uh, in you know in the old days that was simple that you aimed to write simply uh, still works. For example, today, right? Or you can make some changes and stuff that where you didn't think about that or didn't care or was under different kinds of constraints, uh, uh, just rots, right? Uh, and uh, and is is intrinsically uh, more brittle. but I don't know'm I'm not I'm not feeling particularly pessimistic today, but I just want to bring this up that I don't know what the selling point of simplicity is apart from its intrinsic value to the engineer versus how do I put this? Uh, sometimes I think a business will make a calculated bet Right that it's that it's okay for us to be you know energy inefficient, uh, inefficient of engineering time or taking technical debt against the future that we know uh, will be difficult uh, to deal with uh, you know in a year or two, um, because the calculated bet is we need to accomplish some kind of business goals today. Uh, and that's obviously, right if the business goes down, then no, no, no amount of beautiful engineering uh, is yeah. going to be worth anything, right? Uh, yeah, but you, and, you might have to move fast first maybe maybe they're optimizing for moving fast yes but i see i think that one that one is a slippery topic because to me if the software is simple and if it's kept in check and if it's well tested then i'm moving fast right and then i can come to the business and say hey guys i we can turn this around really fast because everything is in order right the house is in order we can do bam 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 versus uh trying to shoehorn stuff into uh, into a, a, a nest of, of badly made decisions in the past so i think my, you go, <laughs> i agree completely but that
0: equation only pans out if you already basically have a running system, right? Like If you're in the, I mean, especially nowadays in the context of like venture, f- venture funds, whatever, like money being pumped into startups which want to hit the market as fast as possible. Well, then maybe grabbing all of these somewhat leaky abstractions and plugging something together, which yeah might break your neck at least technical complexity wise and technical depth wise in two years down the road but it might allow you to hit the markers just a tiny bit faster and um, in that kind of context that's all that matters and that's i think I, I, at least when you, I, i'm not a not, not a how do you say um like somebody who's who's looking at <laughs> all the flows of my i don't really know the word right now my brain is mushy. I'm not an accountant, but like somebody who looks at the economy, economist. I'm not an economist, right? Like, and then think if this is how it works. But like naively looking at it, it seems to me that the, the complexity of how we build a lot of systems nowadays is also um, to s- strongly linked to how businesses build their products nowadays and try to build it as fast and big as possible. So, yeah. To, to circle back then to, to the argument for simplicity is, uh, I think, especially in the context of maybe like smaller companies, we are where they don't want to do that. Right, the way they don't want to, to to build as quickly as possible, but where they still say, hey, I want to have I don't know two people to build this. Let, let's build it in a small scale. Let Let's test it. And in that context, Elixir and the Beam are really strong contenders, and I think also something where maybe to a certain degree we're not quite well represented yet, because I mean, the big argument and the big selling point that um, the Erlang have, especially compared to some of the other more traditional choices like Ruby or Python, is that you're going to have less hassle scaling it. You can still start start off small, and you can start off simple, you can, can arguably build even a somewhat complex system with two people.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and... Uh if you read the the story of some of these Erlang Elixir companies they they were very small right i mean even yeah. the original uh, otp team was very small even the original unix team <laughs> was very small i think there's a there's a pattern there and definitely so speaking about the business aspect and that's precisely what happened with whatnot and i think i think we've been pretty good at managing the debt so for example uh you know the app started. The app started in in serverless land, like you cool. said, right? It's uh, you know our our founder Logan was like, okay, we're gonna slap this together, slap that together, put some lambdas on it, put the data in Dynamo. So so it was really built. You know the I'm not gonna say according to the book because obviously it was it was a very experimental project and trying to get off the ground quickly, but it was in the spirit of serverless computing and 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 cloud first and that kind of thing. And yes, right the the uh, it did pan out, and I think it was indeed a successful a successful takeoff in that sense right so they they made these bets and then came the rewrites right so the, uh, the 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 mobile apps were rewritten from typescript to native technologies the live service was rewritten from lambdas which would start up for like 5 seconds to elixir and that and then the options you know gained some some dynamism so yes and so in that sense i think it's it's not it's not a viable position to say hey all this stuff sucks we should re- have done it simply from the start right but to me it's it's a it's a more subtle subtle uh question of how do we convey right how do we convey how we can make things simpler and better without trying to spill the baby with the bathwater uh, which i think joe armstrong is very good at and if you read his blogs and if you read some of his stories about how they you know had some system and and they just kept it simple as a one e-script or whatever and it was it worked well for 10 years and then you need to need to make a change so they made the change in two hours because it was just one e-script uh, and so forth so i think there's a it takes a bit of a subtlety in, in, in people matters
1: hi this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately i've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level you know whether you're beginner going to intermediate intermediate going to advanced whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So, once again, that's topendevs.com/slash coaching.
0: Yeah. I love that you said that because absolutely people matters because that's something I've been talking about a lot also with, with colleagues and, and people who are interested in listening to me. <laughs> that even though, like, we all, I mean, we, we just now talked about all, all of this fancy technology, all the stuff at AWS gives you, all this Kubernetes being like a very strong piece of technology and very also, arguably well-made piece of technology in the beam as well. But at the end of the day, it still boils down to people making decisions and, and to people having to work with this and to people having to do maintenance and to people having to understand these systems to do changes. So people are, Everywhere, and you can't really remove people from the equation. And I'm, I'm very much in a similar position right now about um, people and technical debt and change, because I'm, I'm, I've been I'm working at a at a company which pretty much well they didn't have like the the rocket launch scenario, but they 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 started off like okay with this business idea, and then they built a, a, hired an agency to build like a first version, right? And they have been growing upon this code base of this agency. Some, some at some point moved it in house, but like built thing after thing after thing on it and didn't initially had like a big guiding hand and a big vision where they wanted to go, right? Like the, this sort of product evolved over time from like one original idea to like a slightly different idea down the road. It was first meant to maybe more B2B, but now it's more B2C, right? So, and you can see all of this, in like the code that has been written, yeah. And there's a lot, a lot of complexity in the code base as it is right now. And the challenges we have right now and where I'm pretty much in the forefront and because I've, I've been picking up a technical lead role is to, okay, yes, all of these things have us served well, but that's maybe say goodbye to some of these let's figure out what is actually core what is actually important and what should we focus on and then let's build the simplest possible thing to get that done and to then down the road make us allow us to move faster again because right now development speed is pretty slow and that is in my opinion really strongly related to the level of complexity in the system there's pretty much there's only one person in the entire company because they have been there for six years who really understand every every moving (laughs) part And everybody else is just, yeah, well, is in their own small little niche of a product. So if, if, if this one person, I don't know, decides to go, gets hit by a bus or wins the lottery,
2: well, oh, they're screwed. <laughs> that's or, the maybe not, the or maybe not, or maybe not, because then actually uh, things really get real. I've yeah. seen things like this happen, right? You, uh, you lose a very important developer uh, who you think uh, is, you know, the key to the, to the system. And then people uh, step up. And, uh, and it, it very often is a, is a good shock to the system, right, and and uh, and you you can no longer coast on someone knowing. Uh you have to know. So okay. you know it it goes. It can go both ways. Uh, surely yeah. the business business would be very concerned, but the developers could actually uh, gain, right? Um, make, uh, like
0: like luckily, this person is also pretty. They're they're very chill about the decisions they've made in the past. And they very,
2: could win the lottery. Years. They they can always win the lottery. Uh, so, <laughs> so. <laughs> but yeah, kind of got you raised here. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't really matter it kind of
0: moved over all the places <laughs> completely uh, well the yeah.
2: simplicity angle i think the simplicity angle is, is super important in in the in the beam like from from the ground from the from the origins forward my thing my thing is uh, i always tell uh, all new uh, all new developers uh, that join and, and want to learn about the system uh not not to start even with elixir not to start with phoenix tutorials that stuff but to start with like the jo- the, the erlang you know the Erlang, the movie, the phone call, hello, Joe, that stuff. Uh, because really, right, they were doing really cool stuff back when, right? This was the '90s, and and if you really d- dig uh, dig deep into like Joe Armstrong's blog or or his PhD thesis, uh, you will see that the simplicity angle was always super super strong. And of course, things grew upon that base right you have all these weird otp applications that you have to compile uh when you compile otp which you know no one knows but probably that was some project at er- ericsson and they had to do with this and that so so those are the inevitable you know the inevitable warts of uh, of history but i think the the spirit is super simple and very uh, ag- aggressively uh simple
0: so i'm curious i mean with all of this notion of like simplicity or maybe like how beam does things differently compared to some other platforms we also talked about that the beam maybe likes big machines more than small machines which is like counter to how the cloud nowadays often operates is there, like, I don't know, like, any any war stories you can tell about scaling a beam-based system to, like, really handle high loads of concurrency, maybe even, like, a clustered system? I mean, you already said that, like, a, a scenario at whatnot,
2: right? Like, any, any war stories there? Did, did you succeed? Yes, yes, we did succeed. So, the war story from whatnot is uh, is actually... Uh... I think there are war stories, and there are more like engineer, like civic, engine, civil engineering stories. Uh, And this is more of a civil engineering story because we, the goal wasn't to scale like to bajillions of users, right? Uh, And uh, and and continue that trajectory. Uh, It was more like so. So the the goal was more to determine the limits of the system, which hadn't been determined up till then, and then and then be able to say, hey. Essentially, what load can this bridge b- bear?? right? What can we pass over this bridge? Where should we stop? Uh, and so this was interesting because it was all, also a people it was a people project uh, in the sense that the, the leadership at whatnot is super, they super get, Technical things—they—they they have a very long history with you know with the tech industry, so uh, they're not like these you know clueless pointy ha- pointy haired bosses that will come and say, hey, you know, I heard blah 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 can do three bajillion users. It, it's all very realistic, and so so we were very close with them, and the goal was so there was plans like a plan A, plan B, plan C. Uh, right down to, we just run stuff on a different platform. We have like YouTube channels ready or whatever. So so it, the business side was very well prepared for all uh, contingencies. However, the bet was, right, we can do this. And so a couple of things, right? The Elixir live service was built to handle much lower load than than we anticipated. And I think the the particularly tricky bit when it comes to scaling is that it wasn't just like a sea level rise of everything. Because that's, for that scenario, one, the Beam is super well-prepared. And two, you actually can deal with it to a large extent via just adding more nodes, right? The, the Kubernetes way. Of course, you get into the problem of cross-node chatter, right? Which is, it's much better to host all these processes on one box with all those CPUs because then message passing is just in-memory, right? In-memory manipulations versus actually sending stuff on the wire, which matters, right, at, at, at scale. But the, the problem was different because the problem was, hey, we usually run these auctions of a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand max people. But now there's a, a celebrity coming on with millions of followers uh, and and this could run into like the high tens of thousands or even the hundreds of thousands. So the goal was how, how big of a single auction can we support? And this is a... a this is admittedly a tough problem for Erlang, right? Because there's only so much a single process can do. Here's a war story, very quickly an aside about war stories. Back in Erlang Solutions, a friend was load testing uh, some RabbitMQ setup for someone. And long story short, they said, now this might be out of date. But back then, and I, and I remember this, they said 100, uh, 10,000 messages per process is what the Beam can handle easily, right? For 10,000 messages per second, assuming you're doing some process. So that was in particular, that was a, a, a rabbit queue, right? Uh, so exchanges are ETS names, and then the queues themselves are processes. So, uh, the, so that's, that's if you if you really load up a queue, then you come up with uh, just the limits of what one process schedules on one CPU can do sequentially. And so essentially, this is what they were asking us to do. Hey, we have, you know, tens of thousands of people, they're going to be sending events to some process, some channel, uh, some uh, auction process. And then that auction process needs to handle all that stuff. Uh, there's also a chat process, uh, and so forth. We had so so there are several things, right? Can we handle a the number of people in the channel, B the number of chats that they might send and then see the auctions? Luckily, the auction went away. We didn't have to process bids because we developed the live uh, and social team developed a feature called giveaways, which was and Logan Paul was like the big the big uh, reveal of that feature. So fortunately that didn't have to that we didn't have to do bid processing at tens of thousands. So we, we were left with chat and then surprise. We were left with presence, which we hadn't even anticipated uh, that would that it would be a problem. And so how do we come? How did we even arrive at the statement that presence is a problem? Is we just load tested the system. And by load tested, we wrote so very quickly, how do we write the load test? We wrote a single program that opens a WebSocket and does some stuff with the live service and then closes the WebSocket. And then you run that program under a supervisor. And then you have a load test because now you can very easily manipulate just the number of children and their interactions. And you have and you have a simulation of concurrent load. So we did that. We coded up those clients. We coded up the scenarios. And we started attacking the system. And very quickly, what happened was we realized that there's two things that go wrong. One is uh, chats. And then the other thing is Phoenix Presence. And if you know anything about Phoenix Presence, it's, uh, well, Phoenix Presence is one thing, but the Phoenix Tracker is another thing. So there's two problems there. Phoenix Tracker essentially keeps track of everyone in each channel, right? And so what happens is once you cross the several tens of thousands of users to track in a given channel, adding a user, removing a user, getting the list of those things, is it just comes up against uh, the limit of what one single process can do. And same thing with uh, same thing went with chats. so if you want to chat and there's a hundred thousand people in the channel. And if you watch our Elixir uh, talk from about uh, 2017, this is something that uh, we submitted a, a pull request to Phoenix pops up 2 to revert. but now we actually ended up wanting to do what the original behavior was because actually you have two kinds of two attractors here. one is I want to, send a bunch of messages to a huge amount of people essentially it's a throughput versus versus volume right so you either want to send a very high volume where the throughput doesn't necessarily matter because it's like one message or you want to have consistent throughput but the volume can't be very high because you can't send a message per second to a million users right um, and so so we had to we had to kind of look explore the volume uh, side of things and long story short is we came across, we can do this or this or that, so many uh, users, so many messages per second at this level of, at this, uh, on this AWS machine. And so the story ends with not, hey, we scaled the system to do a bajillion users and it, uh, and it, and it performed uh, super well. It was, we went to the business and we said, hey, this is what we can support on our current cluster with confidence. So such and so many users, this many messages per second. We propose we cut off traffic at that. Level and the business said yes, that's a good idea. So what we ended up doing is we ended up finding the limits, pushing them to some extent, but you can only go so far until you hit the one pro. What one process can do, and then we said, okay, we're going to cut off traffic at that.
0: Point. Yeah, I I I love how this story then boils down to then again like humans making a decision, right? Like say, okay, yeah, of course we could have pushed it even further. Could maybe like figured out ways to 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 to, to get the system to perform even better. But at the end of the day, it boils down to business making a decision. Yes. And engineers,
2: was... engineers would say, hey, you know, if you have this one channel, one uh, tracker channel, uh, why don't you start it into four tracker yeah, channels? Yeah. And then you can do four times as much. And then you write code to do all this starting." But what are we doing? We are supporting an event where a celebrity wants to bring in n thousand people onto the platform. It's going to be a one-time thing. We can't crash. That's all. That's the requirement, right? If we uh-huh. ha- ha- happen to have to reject some number of people, so be it. We ended up not having to implement any of those hard, hard uh, rejection strategies because we were well under our Logan, our, our technical uh, founder, uh, pushed us really hard, like do a hundred thousand, do whatever. And we uh, didn't uh, end up uh, anywhere near a hundred thousand. So we were well under, well within the bounds, but we knew where the bounds were and we knew how to kind of cut the, right? Cut the traffic, uh, to, uh, to make sure the service stays uh, acceptable. This is, by the way, what DynamoDB does, right? Uh, from By design, right? They know how much the system can do per shard, per whatever. And if you go over that, you get a 404 error saying, hey, client, slow down. This is, we, we cannot process this much. Uh, so there's feedback control built into the system. And ultimately with these huge systems, it's all about feedback control.
0: So Alan, I thought you had like a whole bunch of questions about load testing, as you at least said before we pressed the call. So
3: no, yeah, yeah. I was just curious about how you guys did the load testing, but I believe you said you did that with supervision tree. And so I do remember reading an article. You also had separate machines. You said they were actually beefier than the ones you were actually running, which is interesting.
2: Yes. So that's one thing. That's that's a kind of uh, that's a kind of uh, what do you call it? A, a a secret of the trade that people usually think that it's the server that's. You know, that's most under load when you're load testing, but actually to generate all that traffic, you need a lot more firepower. If you think about all the distributed computing that's out there on the devices that are hitting your server, that's way more than whatever you have on your server, right? Like how many cores does your phone have? It's super powerful, right? So it's like, you know, 10 of those phones is pretty much what your server is. And so if you don't appreciate this fact, right, if you you start load testing with crappy machines, then your machines will get overloaded. But what's worse is... They will skew your your perception of the system because with these load tests, I think this is most important. If you start doing this, and if you do it on your own, if you don't use like a third party tool, if you if you try to do it on your own, it's it's sometimes very hard to tell whether you're seeing a false positive or a true positive in terms of like a, a limit on the system because you know you run and then things go weird and then you don't know like is this my code that's weird is this some like sysctl setting uh, in the Linux kernel and then you go right you you bring up your trusty uh, basho web page with kernel tweaks back for react which is defunct right and so there's a whole kind of body of knowledge right there's a that whole uh brendan uh i forget the name i'm sorry performance there's a whole book about systems performance uh on linux right which goes into all the kinds of profiling you can do and all all the various kernel settings that you have on everything right from Pages to uh, to uh, TCP settings to buffer sizes and all that, right? So you have that whole thing, which is pretty much unknown, that you need to kind of whittle down to something reasonable. Uh, then you have your system. Then you have your test, right? Which isn't like a like a local test that you run locally and you can inspect everything that goes on and and you're pretty sure that it it's not really testing the the what's the word I'm um, what's the word I'm looking for the not the per, it's testing the performance. It's not testing the uh, correctness of the system, right? So you're not sure if, if the test, maybe it's doing something weird that the system isn't really designed to handle. And so so there's a whole lot of kind of unknowns. And this is why the process of load testing is always, it's always a slog. It's always a slog because you do this and then you, that. each of these tests take like, you know, a half an hour to run. So that minus compilation, minus a plus compilation, plus whatever deployments, right? So you get into this very kind of slow, I imagine this is what working on C++ programs in the 90s was, right? You make some changes and then you, you know, you do the XKCD sword play, whatever. Because yeah. you're waiting. Comp- so that's what kind- doing? Yeah. Get back to work. Compiling. It's, oh, okay. Continue. <laughs> so if you change that to load testing, if you change that to load testing, then that's pretty much what it looks like, right? Uh, and then you look at the graphs and so forth. So having big machines on the loader side removes a whole bunch from the equation because at least you know it's not your loading machines dying and then the graphs going down, right? Or for example, they can't hold the webs. So- they can't hold enough open web sockets and then something goes down. Blah blah blah. So yes the loader machines should be bigger than the system under test and comfortably bigger there's also something called a coordinated emission where if you're just measuring response times from the server side you will get better response times than if you're measuring not just the response times that happen on the client but how many calls are made versus how many you think you should be making right because if you uh, if you make uh, 10 calls and one of them is waiting for 500 milliseconds uh, because those other nine uh, are taking up the, the space, then you will have a graph that's like 90th percentile of one millisecond and then 99th percentile 500 milliseconds. But in reality, how many of those should have been made within the second? Probably more, right? So if you had additional requests coming in there, every one of those would be waiting for 500 milliseconds or more, right? And so to actually measure what the realistic, uh, w- realistic latencies under load are, uh, you need to look at coordinated emission, which we didn't do. Which is a very esoteric and mathematical topic. There's a great presentation. We sh- we could link it later. How not to measure latency? It's called by the founder of Azul Systems. I forget his name again. So anyway, so there's a whole bunch of stuff. So th- one one of the best ways to kind of push away the problem of coordinated emission uh, is to have as, as powerful a loading system as possible to make sure those pipes are, are clear between the loaders and the system under test if you want to focus on the system under the
3: test. Yeah, I also think it's, it's quite interesting about how you actually can test your own system to make sure you sorry, how do you don't how do I say this? Maybe I'm saying it wrong. How you can figure out where the issues are, right? So I'm sure telemetry must be your friend. I can imagine some events you're using, but you probably to build some of your own custom events to check to see what's going on.
0: Yes. And so then, we are all about telemetry. What do you mean I think um mm-hmm. uh, is how where the bottlenecks are, right? Where the
3: bottlenecks Yeah, exactly. Because even, even if you use telemetry, right, some pieces, I mean, it may be deep down the code, but there's no telemetry events going on, right? So that part could be quite interesting. So how do you guys actually get in there and measure all the stuff? Are you actually using tracing to measure with the observer? Or, you know, I'm kind of no, curious about I've
2: never used observer. I know it's a nice tool. But uh, I just use the Erlang shell. We all use the Erlang shell. We just get in there, and all the the nice thing about the Erlang shell is again because it's because Erlang is an operating system. Just like you can say cat slash proc slash some PID and you get the textual representation of that process info. You can say process info dot whatever PID and you get an Erlang term representation of the process info. So not only uh, not only do you have equivalent tools for measuring uh, what's going on, but you also have the ability to act on that information, right? So you can write little scripts about, you know, getting all the processes, sorting them by, message queue length and that kind of thing. And actually, right, Recon, that library, by Fred uh, is, uh does a, a bunch of that stuff. So we heavily rely on Recon, because usually what happens, right, if you have a bottleneck, yes, so, I think you're you're exactly right, Alan, right? The, the telemetry will just point you in a general direction, but you don't know what line of code is actually responsible. And very often it's not a line of code, right? It's the way something is wired. So then you go and look at the processes that are involved. And if there's a bottleneck on a single process, then that's the best case scenario because that's the easiest thing to identify, right? Oh, this process has like 2,000 messages in the queue and all others have zero or one. That's a clear win, right? Or Oh, this process has like three gigabytes of heap allocated, and everyone else doesn't, right? Oh, so there must be something wrong. There was actually an interesting thing. So, for example, in the chat scenario, because we talked about the pub sub and about cutting off the 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 uh, in the blog, I've written about how we at some point past some some size of a of a live of an auction. We just we just don't register people for the tracker because if there's 50,000 people you don't care that x left y left a join b joined, z left right it doesn't matter past that point it functionally doesn't even matter so why why even why even have the system do the work for chats uh, there was uh, there was a different thing because the processes that were connecting to the chats this was an interesting debug session so what happens is your socket connects And then you want to fill the screen with the chats that were going on previously. So we have this little store. It's in Redis where we have the 20 most recent, like a rolling, like a window, right? And we just pull those messages in. What was happening was that the chat channel that was opening the channel process, which opens for every WebSocket, right? So if you have 50,000 people, it's going to be 50,000 new channel processes, gets all these messages, does all this stuff, boop, 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 and builds up a huge a huge uh, queue, a huge uh, heap. And so you would see this when the when the system was, st- when the load was starting, you would see a, a graph, right? And it would form a hump. And then you would see the garbage collection kick in and the hump would go down and then it would flatten out. And the problem with that hump was that it made the maximum amount of memory used by the system much higher than the steady state. Because, right, you could you use like 20 gigs just to do that before the GC kicked in. And then it was at 10 gigs. So it was pretty bad. So we had to take a look at how to do that. And then what we ended up doing was we ended up manually garbage collecting the process. So what we did was there was the init, uh, the I forget the clause name, but there was like an init clause where we would do the work, we would garbage collect ourselves and then send ourselves a message to actually get in the loop of, of, of handling uh, messages. Uh, so that was something we had to debug with with Recon as well. Take a look at why this is happening, right? And then kind of go one by one. Oh, is it this, right? Is it all this? Is it the messages? Turns out we're getting 20 messages for 50,000 people. At scale, things are very different, right? It's not like, oh, 20 messages, who cares, right? No, because it's times 50,000, right? So now you're talking about megabytes and megabytes and megabytes.
3: Yeah, I remember there's this hibernation and all this kind of stuff. Like it's stuff, all kinds of stuff's going into my head. Going back to the presence, right? Sure, it makes sense. You don't want to blast to everybody, hey, here's who's leaving, here's who's entering. But I think some places, especially like live streams, they want to see every couple of seconds, they want to see an update about how many total people are there. I'm guessing that would have been something that you would probably end up switching to, no? I mean, you could just show ten, top 10 people who are there plus the total amount, right?
2: So, yeah. So, <laughs> so, this is a. So, I guess we can go like open the airline seller right, and go into the Erlang the, the Erlangs seller of tricks. So what you end up doing right is the, the first thing is you, you you start checking this stuff into ads tables. So instead of tracking the number of people through tracker processes, we just have an ets table on each machine with the, the ID of the of the uh, auction and then uh, and then just to the counter right. It's ads update counter, ads decrement counter, super cheap, super nice. And then on socket, close, we decrement the counter. So that's where we get the counters uh, from, not from the tracker. Because, again, taking the tracker, counting that list is horribly expensive, right? And so It's it the, an O of N operation, is it? Yes, yes. Yeah. And then plus, right, the tracker is a process. It's, it has to do actual work. So if you ask it yeah. to list, it has to do the list instead of handling ins and outs and so forth. Also interesting about the presence, right, is those metas tables with the joins and the leaves, which are very nice when you're under 10,000, right? But imagine when you're at, you know, 50,000, and you keep getting these socket updates with all those joins and leaves. So what ended up happening is that stuff started and clogging up the network, because there was just so many, so many megabytes of information. So that was another thing we had to cut out, which is, hey, after, you know, so many people are in the channel, we don't even send out the updates about who joined and who left, because there's enough chatter in the chat itself, uh, for us to pollute that space, right? That, that's, precious user user uh attention space, right? Which we don't want to fill up with with bureaucracy.
3: Okay. Yeah, it's this is pretty interesting stuff. I have to take a look at your talk because yeah, I'm always interested in this. But sadly I don't get anything so popular. People don't throw scale at me. I got maybe maybe all the clients I have are just bad luck.
2: It is you have to milk it. <laughs> you have to milk it, right? Not all of this work is like that. And then sometimes uh and sometimes you get this opportunity and then you jump on it. Uh, and there's always a level of uncertainty involved and there's always like a oh, can I actually handle this, right? Because this isn't like everyone does this, right? This is, you know, a couple of people in the world and they use PubSub in that way and, and they use whatever and they use PG2 in some extreme way, right? So you have these pockets around the world of people pushing some part of the Erlang ecosystem to the extreme and they usually don't overlap, right? And so it, very often it's, I'm, I feel very blessed that I have uh, a, Team, uh, a team of coworkers who are just super brains a uh, shout out to to my pal rafael and uh pavo and the old erlang solutions uh team uh they uh sometimes uh you you just make a bet right and you say okay i there's this problem right i have i have talented people with me we can try uh and then yeah if if you fail well then right it's uh that's learning but then if you succeed then uh then then that's some, a pebble on the on the hill of, you know, cumulative uh, Erlang-beam experience for the community that you can then share, right, that then builds on something. I think that was great. The the Bastro folks uh, really did a a terrific job uh, in terms of documenting because they were obviously pushing the system very hard Right, And so all, all of their work around documenting how how the beam behaves and then also patches to the beam itself and and so forth, I think that was super, super valuable, and I think that's a tradition that I would like to you know foster wherever I work to uh, to get to get some input back into into the beam.
3: Did you guys ever reach out to any other companies that are dealing with hard scale to see how they handle some
2: stuff or blast out some messages, or was it just basically going
3: you just your own kind of internal struggles?
2: Just our own internal struggles. I think you know between us we have a lot of uh, experience. So I think you know I think if we if I'm super weak on the web front, so if if the if the tables were turned and if it turned and if we had to like you know service a bunch of uh, Phoenix uh, page views or live views or something like that, I would definitely be not be attempting this myself. I'm a you know chat streaming chatting uh, type of type of engineer. So in that case, I would definitely turn to the community. In this case, I think we felt confident that, you know, we got this. Okay. That's like quite a bit of wisdom there. So. <laughs> and I, I think I have
0: to ask the one question, maybe some people are wondering right now, like uh, are you hiring?
2: <laughs> yes. Yes, we are hiring. Yes, we are hiring. Please reach out. Uh, there will be a link. Uh, there yeah, will yeah, be no, a link. Cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, interesting Elixir challenges. There is not pure Elixir work we are expected to be generalists so you will uh, you will get your hands dirty probably in in multiple uh, multiple areas but uh, but the Elixir work that that is there i think is uh, is extremely fun and rewarding and there's uh and there's business challenges that that your code is powering and that and that your code has to kind of prove out so uh, very exciting
3: i guess next question is when are you going to get rid of all that python stuff yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the back end.
2: This is why I'm not never super optimistic. Uh, that there is so much. It's like uh, Sasha, like you said about the layers, right? There's so much there's so much encoded business uh, processes in that code. And that's kind of the default code for for API stuff. Uh so not in the short term. Uh perhaps we will be breaking off. I think we've we've managed nicely to keep uh the the, the service sprawl contained to the main backend in, in Python and the live service in 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 Elixir, which to me maps uh you know to the domains in a in a rough very rough grained way. Now there's services coming up that utilize machine learning, which was natural not to shove in the main backend where it would uh, it would uh, get suffocated. So I I think it's a natural process that you know as companies grow and teams want to do their own stuff that that they're going to break out the services not for technical reasons but for people reasons again right ding ding and so in that sense I think I think there's a chance that we'll be uh, putting uh, out Elixir services uh, especially since my experience with onboarding people onto elixir is that is that it's a very friendly newbie friendly language uh, especially if they're good if they're good engineers in other languages then they really appreciate the you know the, the all the all the human uh all the uh what do you call it, creature comforts that you get with elixir uh, all the all the sanity right uh so i think there's a there's a very good aura uh around elixir uh, oh, in the sense oh. that people that people i don't know i don't know the word to use there, there's a there's a there's a, 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 what's the positive uh po- the the positive opposite to 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 a shadow like you have languages that have a shadow but elixir has a has an aura
1: <laughs> that's halo. How I see it. <laughs> halo, halo. There you go, there you go.
2: <laughs> so yeah so that's what it is but but definitely what not i think it's it's somewhat of a standard in modern, like super fresh companies where people just say, oh, let's just do it in Python uh, because of the availability of packages, all this stuff. There's this feeling, I'm going to bring up XKCD again, I'm sorry, uh, but that old comic <laughs> about where he imports anti-gravity. And that, I think that still works in Python. Like that's still one of the charms of Python. Although no one tells you what the cost of import anti-gravity is and how you actually have to deploy your system. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dark corners there. That are a lot of yeah seriously <laughs>
0: yeah I mean, for everybody who has also been following me, for example on twitter i'm I'm a big proponent of like being pragmatistic, being a pragmatist being pragmatic about things at the end of the day, if like a given problem is solvable with a tool you know well, then yeah, why not use it? I mean, at the end of the day, if your team feels comfortable using Python to solve a certain kind of problem. I mean, if, it's also, if it does a job and it's not a pain in the ass, yeah, then why not? I mean, I like working in Elixir and I uh, like working in Elixir very much. And it's definitely my preferred language, but I would never say that everybody has to do that for every single problem because, I mean, we, we had an episode a while ago where we talked about when not to use Elixir, maybe, right? And uh, there are use cases where arguably Elixir is not the best choice. And one of these use cases is their team is super comfortable in Ruby. They're, they're, they know the Ruby in and out and, they're, they're, and the Business domain they're operating in is not really at odds with that. Then sure, what, what, there's no reason to switch to here. At the end of the day, we're not getting paid for, as you said earlier, writing beautiful code or building super great systems. But I mean, to solve business problems,
2: exactly, exactly. And then what's the uh, what's the glory to be had in rewriting an existing system exactly. just to change the language? That's there's no, there's no no real benefit. Uh, so so yeah, yeah so you
0: you're literally burning money. <laughs> Okay, no, 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 you're not literally burning money. I'm sorry, but you're...
2: Well, with some of these systems, you are burning money in the cloud. Yeah, <laughs> the hours, just, uh, you know, just go by.
0: True, 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 true. Okay, um, since we already crossed the one hour mark, unless there's something else you, Ellen, would like to ask, or you, Simon, you would like to, I don't know, plug here, then I would slowly transition us to pics. Okay, but before we do that, uh, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you, how would they best do that?
2: I have a, I have an email address <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I and I have a blog. Uh, that's how you reach me uh, via my email. So I have a blog uh, at pzel.name. and I used to have a Twitter very long ago. I deleted. It. I'm I try not to spend too much time on the computer beyond what is strictly necessary. No one's paying me. <laughs> no one's paying me to be on Twitter. So so yeah. Uh, if you reach out, uh, we do have a, myself and Rafael, my my pal. Uh, we have a website at well dash iron.com, where we put our kind of shared collaborative collab, collaborative essays which we've which we've let slack a bit uh in in the last year but but we also uh we also reply to developers at williron.com we get some emails sometimes from people reading our reading our posts and saying hey i like this i'd like to do that or we're trying to do this in our company so if you want to reach us as uh as a duo but then also developers at warren.com. Nice, okay. I'm yeah. also on Whatnot as awk engineer, but I can't sell yet. Whatnot hasn't uh, doesn't support sellers in Poland yet, so uh, I only buy. But once we do, uh, I'll be uh, selling stuff on Whatnot as awk underscore engineer. Okay. For okay.
0: We're going to include, include links to all of that. So if you want to get some Simon merchandise down the road, that's, that's the place to go, right? <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, then let us transition to picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Since I'm asking, as usual, Alan, what is your pick for
0: this week or your picks?
3: Yeah, so lately I've been debugging systems in production, but not in the fun way that Simon has. But more like, why isn't this configuration working? And mostly I can I push myself to Kubernetes. And so I've been using this tool called Kubernetes, which is like a native Mac client for Kubernetes. And it's been fantastic. So, for this tool, I think it's uh, it's really cool. So, if you guys are using Kubernetes, definitely check it out. It's uh, really nice if you're on Mac. Uh, I think the next cool one to use after that would probably be K9S, which is also pretty sweet too. So, those two tools are definitely in my tool belt when I go working in production.
0: Nice. Have you ever tried Lens?
3: Never heard of this one. How do you, you say might it? LENS.
0: LENS. It's like a visual Kubernetes browser so yeah it's also like a, something I, I occasionally reach for when i want like more of an exploratory scenario uh,
3: so yeah let me check this one out nice uh,
0: okay then i think i'm gonna go go first time and you, you, you can uh, enrich people with your picks at the end and so i have one pick this week which is absolutely not technical at all but it is people a people pick so to speak at least to a certain degree it is a small people pick and it's a book i've been reading and it's called this is literally the title of the book i'm not joking Um, the book you wish your parents had read that's the title of the book (laughs) and as you as as i said like it's a book about little people and it's a book about how we as humans bring pre-programmed responses to stressors and like to some situations just from our own childhood, from our own way of how peop- our parents treated us in certain situations. And we, like, we're like just hardwired then to do that to our kids. Not hardwired in the sense you can't change it, but I mean, our, our brain is molded that way. And that's, it's very valuable, very important to take a look at your own childhood and figure, out okay, wait, why, am I, why am I reacting to this situation so strongly, for example? What might have happened in my childhood that it makes me react this way? And all of my emotions at this moment actually belonging to this moment or maybe to a moment in the past it's not a read like i don't know like you don't sit down on the couch with like a cup of coffee and a cozy blanket and just say oh this is like such a nice Sunday afternoon reading really. it's more of like a self reflective thing a bit exhausting at times but it's definitely it's very rewarding I've, I've I've finished like half of it now and there are already some some aha moments in there which which made me reflect on, on, on how for example I treat my kids because I'm I think I've mentioned it before, but I have two little kids. So, and then again, the way, the things I learn about working with my kids on day to day basis, and the things I learn at work on working, do on, on like working with people and and how to treat people. There's a strong overlap there. Like so a lot of things you can take, take from one thing and the other. So, even though this is a, a book about um, how about about being a parent and having kids. I still think, like, if you're interested in this whole social technological thing, there is there's value to be found here. So yeah, maybe maybe a bit outside the user context, but it's definitely a very very good very uh, book which is well worth the read.
2: Okay, Simon, what is your pick? What are your picks? Okay, hey, I, I did my homework. So you said three picks. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna uh, rattle them off. So pick number one uh, that I think is super valuable and super kind of high high uh, high return for Elixir developers is to read the works of Joe Armstrong. So read uh, his PhD thesis. It's not, it's not, uh, it, it's, 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 it's just a great read. It's not a dry, uh, it, unapproachable thing. It's a great, it's a great read. Next is uh, his blog. Uh, if you read, I think it's still up. I hope it's still up and his Twitter. He passed away, uh, I think it was two years ago already, or year three. So, so these things might, you know, start coming down at some point unless someone archives them. Excellent stuff. Uh, and then his presentations on YouTube are great uh, from various conferences. He had a great chat with Alan Kay, which, which, which I, which I witnessed at, uh, Elixir conference, in San Francisco. So yeah, Joe Armstrong, uh, I, I just always, uh, hype, uh, all, all his writings and, and speeches, uh, cause, uh, he's the spirit that animates the beam. That's number one. Number two is read the classics in, in, in the sense that read the old papers you can open up the ACM awards turing award page all the papers are are up there you can read that stuff you can i guess the the pick is for you to gain a appreciation for computing history because a lot of these things that we're seeing are just iterations of stuff that happened in the past uh, and people have thought about them before and maybe their ideas could inspire you to uh to do a better job of engineering and maybe simpler. So yeah, those are the two. And then the third one is, uh, is very much in the vein of Sasha's. So I'm a dad too. I have three kids and I'm also a programmer dad. And so the third pick is just, uh, to, uh, remember that you have a body and that our job really seems like a light job and we're not digging trenches, but it really is heavy on hard on the body, sitting all the time, looking at the screens. Uh, so, uh, take care of your health, especially uh, as our generation, you know, the, uh, we're we're not all super young anymore. Uh, it's, uh, it's it doesn't get easier down the road. And having kids actually turn opens your eyes to this stuff, right? You wanna you wanna use the time with them. You don't want to be you know sitting on the couch all day, tired or whatever. So uh, that's my message to my fellow programmers: uh, to uh, to take care of yourself. Uh, and that, that's those are my picks. And end of message. It's a wholesome pick if I've ever wrote one. <laughs>
0: But yeah, plus, plus, plus one on that, definitely plus one on that. Okay, then Simon, was a pleasure having you. It was a
2: pleasure uh, being here.
0: Thank you. Then I hope you all enjoyed listening to our rambling as usual and tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir
1: Mix. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot to learn more.